This is the Scripture Study Project. We are your hosts, Krista and Zach Horton, and this is our podcast where we study Scripture with you. Each episode, we help you discover new or renewed excitement for God and His Word. Invest your heart and personal life into your study and connect with others as you teach and learn together. Hey, welcome back to the Scripture Study Project. This month, we want to study a question that is not only important for us and our own faith, but for our interactions with others outside of our faith, specifically with other Christians. So the question is, are Latter-day Saints Christian? And I want to start with um, a a scripture in John uh, from our Come Follow Me reading this upcoming month. This is John chapter 7. Uh, Verse 43 says that there was a division among the people because of him, because of Jesus. And if you read the couple of verses before that and a couple of verses after that, you can see the different divisions. Uh, Verse 40, there were some that said, of truth, this is a prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Uh, Verse 46 the officers that go to question or to try and take Jesus said, Never spake a man like this. Uh, the Sanhedrin, in verse 48, have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed on him? Nicodemus, in verse 50, stands up and defends the Savior. And I think I found that a significant way to start because even in Jesus' own time, when he's physically there, there were uh, multiple thoughts and beliefs about him. And as the church continues to grow and develop, um, you see this a lot in the Pauline epistles, that division doesn't diminish, it actually increases. Much of what Paul is doing in his different letters is trying to create some unity in the Christian world. Well, fast forward 2,000 years, and here we are now with over 40,000 Christian denominations. And yet, somehow, even though the differences between our church and other denominations uh, are very similar in magnitude to some of the differences between different Christian denominations. Uh, When we claim to be Christian, there's a lot of pushback against that. And what we want to do in this episode is, uh, first of all, briefly explain as best we can where that comes from, but then more importantly, begin a study where we can look at the the New Testament that we'll be studying this upcoming month, um, and be able to confidently claim our Christianity, to explain why it is that we actually are Christian and why we so uh, so I don't know, desperately want that title. Yeah, that's definitely a title that I want for myself to call myself that, but also to be recognized by others as a Christian. And maybe you've come across this where... Um, you've, they've said, wait, are you really Christian? Or maybe you've heard, I mean, there's articles out there, there's things I know right now with the chosen, there's actually been some controversy there too of like, wait, you're filming in Utah. Are you, are you a Mormon for the producer? And then backlash about, wait, Mormons aren't even Christian. And, you know, I I feel like that has been a more recent discussion of this, even though we have found in our community here out on the East Coast, on the Northeast Coast, um, I'm sure it's different in the South, that most people are really open and inviting to many different types of Christians. Most people don't often know what our church actually is. Um, 
So we get the chance to tell them about that. But one thing I have found in conversation with many of these Christian friends that I have met recently over the last few years, especially, is that um, I want to be a part of them. I want to feel a part of this Christian sisterhood and brotherhood that um, that I I feel proud to be a part of. We also thought that this would be a relevant study as we look toward this upcoming week of celebrating Easter with this Christendom. And a lot of these scriptures that we'll be studying this month in the Gospels are scriptures that talk about being disciples and how Christ wants us to follow him. And what a fitting way to feel Christian, right? Is mm-hmm. that that's, that is the easiest commonality that we have with all of them. And so hopefully this is something that um, helps you maybe answer those questions if you ever do get asked, or maybe it's just for you. Like, wait, I do identify to this group of Christians and maybe it gives us all a different perspective of understanding that that's who we are and we can proudly claim that even if there are the differences that we share doctrinally in other places. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. So just a brief uh, introduction maybe to why we aren't Christian in the eyes of many denominations. And I want to put a couple of caveats here at the beginning. First of all, um, I, I don't confidently at all try and speak for um, other denominations or Christianity as a whole. First of all, there is no universal definition of Christianity. Uh, as I mentioned before, 40,000 different denominations, and all of them have unique aspects of their faith. Um, and so I want to be really careful that I and um, and that we in our discussion don't don't try and overstep our our description. However, I've been in enough conversations uh, and have read a lot written by other churches to understand, I think, what they're pointing at. Uh, The second caveat, um, as you already said, uh, Krista, that most Christians uh, outside of maybe the West... um, Or the South. Or the South, yeah. I feel um, like where there's more of a Bible Belt feeling. Most of them are really unfamiliar with our church as a whole. Um, And so if you just say to people, well, I'm a Christian, they'll usually take that at face value without much pushback. The pushback that we do receive often doesn't come from the individuals themselves. It comes from their pastors who will receive some kind of training on what quote-unquote Mormonism is, and then they'll give that to their congregants. And the way that they'll frame it is this is uh, kind of a false Christ or something that's really dangerous to uh, listen to or belong to. And in that description, they'll call us a cult or they'll very clearly label us as unchristian. Um, to draw lines between what they believe and what we believe. The third caveat um, is we often are victims of what's called the no true Scotsman fallacy. Uh, This goes something like this. Uh, Scotsman is uh, watching television and he sees on television uh, a horrible crime committed elsewhere in the world. And his confident response to the crime is, well, no Scotsman would ever do something like that. Well, the next night, he's watching a television, uh, the news, and sees an even more horrible crime, but this time committed by someone from Scotland. And his response to that is, well, no true Scotsman would ever do that. 
in discussions about Christianity, it can feel sometimes like that, where someone will say, you're not Christian, and we will say, well, we do follow Jesus Christ. His name is literally the name of our church. And then they'll respond, well, no true Christian does this, this, or this. So we feel that painfully, but we also have to be really careful not to reciprocate that. We don't want to judge other Christians for what they believe. We certainly don't want to diminish their faith, uh, their culture, their background. If we want some respect as Christians, we need to probably lead out in offering that respect to others. And if I can just offer one more caveat before we move on is that I apologize for my voice on this episode. <laughs> it's really funny. We've we've kind of um, doing these monthly episodes has been obviously easier because we haven't been doing as much, but we have actually, what is this? The third recording we've done. <laughs> the third day. And I did not talk like this the last two times we recorded. So it was obviously meant to be because um, apparently my voice, I'm not even that sick, but my voice just took a turn for the worse. Gravelly and wise. <laughs> and I, I've tried everything. I'm like, I'm going to drink some, some tea. I'm going to get a cough drop. Anyway, so that's the last one is that I apologize <laughs> for my voice on this episode, but that's life, right? Yeah. All right, so first and briefly, why aren't we Christians in the eyes of other Christian denominations? Uh, there's three kind of categories of reasons. There's many reasons that people will name, but as I've read a lot and listened a lot, there's kind of three things that they continually come back to. One of those things we can't do anything about. Another one we still can't do anything about, but we can learn something about it that will help us in communication with our Christian friends and the third one we actually can do something about, which is what this podcast episode is all about. So the first, the one that we can't do anything about, is canon. We are often not described as Christians because we do not hold to what they say sola scriptura, which means uh, only the scriptures. And by scriptures, they mean Bible. Uh, most, if not all other Christian denominations, um, use the Bible as their one and only authority Though with an asterisk, they have different translations. Some use the Apocrypha or the Pseudopigrapha, others don't. Um, of course, there are many pastors and teachers and authorities, especially if you're thinking about the, the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, where there are some um, high authorities that can interpret or describe doctrine or scripture. So, But largely, when they discuss us, it's, well, that's the group that doesn't rely solely on the Bible. And we can't do anything about that because we don't uh, rely solely on the Bible. We have an open canon, we have additional books of scripture, and we believe in ongoing revelation to current prophets. And that's not something that we can erase or that we should try and diminish. And don't you think that's probably what amongst, like you said, the 40,000 other Christian denominations, um, certainly they're all slightly different in some way, but maybe we get more recognized because of this yeah. this truth is this is kind of a blaring one and then we have broadway musicals put on about the book of mormon and it gets in popular culture and so that one really is a sticking point honestly yeah. well it's a unifying feature from for christianity and it then therefore kind of sets us aside a bit now i said we can't do anything about it one small thing we probably could do about it is be a little bit more cautious in how we describe the bible we're maybe a little too quick to jump to the as far as it is translated correctly, or the Book of Mormon is the most true book on earth. Now, not that those are not accurate statements, uh, but in discussions with other Christians, it's probably better for us to 
beef up our biblical uh, literacy, to be able to talk about what we learn from the Bible and what we love about the Bible and how foundational it is to our faith and to our belief in Christ. Which I think that's been one of the things that I've really loved about um, this new emphasis with the Come Follow Me manuals. Even though in the past we have studied all the books of scripture, I just feel like this has been um, a more in-depth study that we've all had. And especially coming through now, the New Testament for the second time, I think has just really offered hopefully this unifying experience for all of us that, no, we we believe in the Bible and that's okay to claim that. Yeah. The second reason why we're not Christian in the eyes of many is our creed or, or their creeds that we do not ascribe to. Uh, there are kind of three main creeds that most of Christianity uh, views as authoritative. There's the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and the Apostles' Creed. And all three of them are really similar, especially the Nicene and the Apostles' Creed. Um, and actually, if you read them, they're not that different, if different at all, from what we believe. Uh, case in point, let me read to you the Nicene Creed. This one gets a really bad rap, and it shouldn't, because listen to the way it describes Christian faith. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, and the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. By the way, Catholic here just means whole, not the specific capital C Roman Catholic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Not that different from what we believe. Now, there's a history behind all of these creeds that I won't get into, but largely they were written not necessarily to define, or not only to define Christian doctrine, but to set Christianity apart from some of the other offshoots that were creeping up in the third and fourth centuries after Christ. For example, uh, the Trinity is something that shows up pretty heavily in the Athanasian Creed, and the reason why that was so important is because Christian, early Christians were being accused of being polytheistic by Jews, most notably. Uh, the Jewish religion is monotheistic. They worship only one God. But here Christianity comes and says, yes, we worship that God, but we also recognize this man, Jesus, who is God, and the Holy Spirit that he spoke so often about, which is God. And so how do we describe ourselves as still monotheistic and obeying the commandment to have only one God, and yet we describe these three different gods? And that's where the, the description of the Trinity came from, which in itself isn't that different from us. It, you read the description of the Trinity and you read the Godhead, and they're really similar. Uh, if you talk to someone who really knows their doctrine, their Christian doctrine, 
the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity doesn't claim that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are the same person. It claims that they're made of the same substance. Or in other words, they are all of them God, one God, but three separate persons. Every creed you read talks about them being three separate persons. So long history that we probably have more commonality with. What does set us apart, though, isn't that we disagree with those what's written in the creeds. Uh, We might describe it differently. It's that we believe more about God than is written in those creeds. And that, again, comes from our open canon and from revealed uh, scripture. For example, we believe that Heavenly Father is literally the father of our spirits and that he has a plan to help us develop and become like him. That's not a creedal statement, and it's one that sets us apart from a lot of our Christian friends. Um, In this, I I read something recently from Jan Ships, who's uh, one of the most notable um, scholars of Mormon history or Mormonism, and yet she's a very ardent Methodist. And she says she gets asked all the time the question, are Mormons Christian? And she says that one of her responses to that question is to ask the questioner, well, are you asking me, are Mormons, meaning members of the Church of Jesus Christ, Christian? Because if you are, then I would say yes, because they follow Jesus Christ. And that's the basic definition of of Christians. But if you're asking me, is Mormonism Christian, meaning are the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ aligned fully with all of the teachings accepted by common Christianity, then that's where there's a bigger discussion to be had. And I think that's a really healthy way to kind of understand that. The third thing that uh, maybe sets us apart from other Christians is community. And this is the one that we can actually do something about. Our history, the history of the restored church, is that it started somewhat in contravention to contemporary Christianity, right? Joseph Smith is asking questions about the prevailing Christian doctrines of the day and is told that none of them are the accurate word of God. And so through him is restored the church of Jesus Christ. That story automatically creates a division between us and other Christians. And then that's heightened in our history because we were persecuted for that difference. And then we kind of aggravated that difference too by labeling all of the Christian denominations as apostate or coming up during the great apostasy. And so here we are 200 years later, and now there's a pretty wide cultural community divide. Um, Now, I don't know if the divide is as significant as others might make it seem. For example, pretty much every Christian denomination comes because it's, it's pushing back against something else. Protestantism is a protest against Catholicism. Um, and a lot of Protestant denominations come because they see something that they don't like in another denomination. So that's not really unique. Neither is it unique that we claim to be the one true church because just about every religion has at some level that core statement that, that this religion is true and others have some error in them. But what is unique is that our community with other Christians is a very recent divide, whereas they have, uh, Protestantism and Catholicism have had millennia to kind of work out their differences and learn how to coexist in harmony. Um, David French is a, a popular political and religious commentator, and he wrote something I really like about this. He said, I'd argue that our view on salvation, whether Arminian or Reformed, is of enormous consequence, going directly not only to the nature of God, but also how we understand each moment of our lives. Yet I rarely hear anyone seriously ask, 
are Methodists Christian? Perhaps that's not so much because the theological differences aren't real and profound, but because we've made our historical peace through shared understanding of our faith in Christ. Perhaps it's time that we make the same peace with Mormons. And so this is one that I think we actually can do something about, and in this episode, it's exactly what we want to do. What this suggests to me is that we have some work to do in clearly, consistently, and confidently claiming our Christianity. And so as we look at uh, the scriptures coming up this month, we want to share a couple of ideas with you that we found in the scriptures that help us to really confidently claim our Christianity. And of course, as with every episode, we hope that this begins a great study for you where you can find great evidence um, of your own Christianity, something that you can hold dear and share with others. And I think mostly that crom- common Christian Christianity, not a word. <laughs> New word now, I like it though. <laughs> that common bond that we share with other Christians. So I'm going to propose three considerations for why we can consider ourselves Christians and hopefully why others can consider us Christians and what what perspectives might be helpful to those on the outside looking in that maybe we can change a little bit. And I'm going to start by reading a scripture in Matthew 13. Now this is one just one of my favorite scriptures And I'm stealing a little bit from last week's study of Come Follow Me when we talked about parables. So Matthew 13, starting in verse 15. For this people's heart has grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn back and I would heal them. Something that we've kind of already talked about in this episode is that link that we believe in Jesus, and so that makes us Christian. Um, and just to further this a little bit, which I think as I was reading this scripture this week, what touched me was that last verse, is that when we see and hear and understand that Jesus will heal us. And I think when we put up barriers to that of why we're not Christian and why someone else isn't a Christian the way that they should be, I think that blocks that healing power Um Instead, I think we can think of it in more abundance that he is a healer. And if we look and turn to him, that he will heal each of us. We're all striving to do our best to follow him. But the points I want to bring up follow this. How can we have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand so that we can be healed in our own way and maybe make us feel like we're part of that Christian community? So first, let's have eyes to see the cross. Gay Strathern is a BYU researcher and professor. She writes, The crucifixion is one of the few events that is chronicled in all four of the New Testament Gospels. Yet, traditionally, the crucifixion, while acknowledged by Latter-day Saints, has taken something of a backseat to the events of Gethsemane and the resurrection in their public discourse about the atonement. Institutionally, and often privately, Latter-day Saints do not join with other Christians in celebrating Good Friday. This downplaying has led one outsider to conclude in an issue of Newsweek magazine, Mormons do not place much emphasis on Easter. Yet in spite of the lack of discourse and celebration of Good Friday, the crucifixion plays a critical role in Latter-day Saint teachings and doctrine, not only in the Bible, but also in our restoration scripture of the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants. 
She goes on to offer some compelling reasons why she believes that the cross today should play a greater role in LDS study and discourse. Some I found to be most interesting, but they all are, so you should read the article, which we'll put in our show notes, include what I already mentioned before is that the cross is an integral part of the atonement. We focus a lot on on the other parts. And often, I think this is a beautiful thing that we often say, if you have, have any ever had someone ask, why don't you wear crosses or why don't you have crosses on your church? Well, because we focus on the resurrection. But without the the crucifixion, there would be no resurrection. I love next the idea that she brings up about the New Testament. In the New Testament, the invitation to take up our cross was the symbol of discipleship. And we use that term often in many of our of our general conference talks and many of the things that as we talk about the New Testament and what a beautiful symbol that is. In fact, I was just going to read that. This is Matthew 16, 24 from our study this next month. Then said Jesus to his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I love that. Exactly that. Like what a better symbol to just unite us with other Christians. And although I, I don't think there's anything wrong with us talking about it or focusing more on the resurrection. I think it's something that maybe the time for us separating ourselves in that way is done. That is part of discipleship. Um, and then the last point that I, I kind of did a woe when I, when I read this, even though I've read this article a few years ago, um, she talks about, she says, the signs of the crucifixion were so important for Christ that he kept them even after he received a glorified resurrected body. Um, even in Third Nephi, when he he introduces himself, he he shows his wounds from the cross, and I find that to be really powerful, and a powerful reminder for us that that though there might have been a time when we as Mormons or Latter Day Saints needed to separate ourselves from the cross, I just don't really think that's the case anymore, um, and I think that's a really great commonality we can find with maybe reclaiming the cross is what the artic- the title of her article is. Um, and I think we can do that. Yeah. yeah. I was just reading Elder Holland's talk from this last conference titled Lifted Up on the Cross, where he um, was asked the same question. And he gives such an incredibly beautiful description of uh, why, where the cross comes from first as a Christian symbol. But what we emphasize, not um, at the cost of the cross, but maybe in place of or in priority over the cross. Uh, he says... This is at the beginning of his talk. Inasmuch as such questions about the cross are often a question about our commitment to Christ, I immediately told him, my friend, that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints considers the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ to be the central fact, the crucial foundation, the chief doctrine, and the ultimate expression of divine love in God's grand plan of salvation for his children. And then he makes an interesting point further down his talk where he mentions that the symbol we have chosen to identify our church, especially recently with the rebranding of the church, is the image of Thorvaldsen's Christus statue. And that's now the official logo of our church. And if you look at that statue, it has a similar kind of outline of the cross. It's the Savior with his arms extended walking towards us. And it symbolizes our focus on the resurrected Lord and living Lord Jesus Christ. And so even there, you see a little bit more of us uh, identifying ourselves very clearly, not with a cross necessarily, but embracing this symbolic representation of Jesus Christ that I think will help us to 
um, build some bridges with friends in, in other Christian denominations. Wow. And how many times have I looked at that logo, the new rebranded logo, and not seen that, that, that the Christus statue is in essence a cross, mm-hmm. has that shape to it. Wow. That's really cool. Next of that, of how we can be healed from that Matthew 13 is have ears to hear. I'll start in reading in John chapter 10, verse two. It says, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens it for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. The simple teaching here is that we hear Jesus, our shepherd, the good shepherd. And that is precisely what so many other Christian believers are trying to do too. Simply put, we are disciples of Christ. We strive to hear him and understand and recognize his voice. And I just think that's probably one of the most beautiful common denominators we have with other Christians. Well, again, you look at what President Nelson has been consistently inviting us to do to better hear him, to pay more attention to the Savior's words, his example, his teachings, his doctrine, his character as we study the gospel. And that can only help us uh, better define our Christianity, better claim our Christianity, and also as we share with others, being able to talk confidently about what the Savior himself teaches. We have a great history of prophets and scriptural heroes that not that we should seek to diminish, but sometimes we talk more about Nephi than we do about Jesus. And maybe this hear him emphasis will help us to focus most on the Savior himself and uh, and be able to, again, better claim and, and claim our Christianity. And isn't that kind of the invitation that President Nelson, like you said, is giving us is how how do you hear him? Like focus on that, that hearing, having ears to hear. Um, I really like that. So the last one is having a heart to understand. Um, and I'm going to read a scripture from Matthew 18, verse 11, which just says simply, for the son of man is come to save that which was lost. And maybe you have had conversations like I have had you know, in years past with people talking about being saved or the grace of Jesus. Oh, I'm already saved. Or I, I only believe in grace. Like he's already done everything. And I even remember having discussions and maybe even arguing that I thought I was completely right about the great, some of the grace book of Mormon scriptures, which I now say like, yeah, I didn't really understand it fully, but I was trying, but whether or not we disagree with others on how we repent or how we receive Jesus's mercy or grace or love, I think the ultimate thing is that we have that heart to understand that Jesus is the healer, that when we have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand who he is and what his grace means for us and for others, that he He will heal us. And once we've experienced that healing, which I'm sure many of you have, that's why you're sticking around, is that we have a common link with other Christians, whether we define that slightly differently, but we're all here to be healed by Jesus. You know, I had a discussion with a friend a while back uh, about some of these same things. And um, in trying to describe to him why I was Christian, my first attempt was to go to the teachings that we have or the name of our church or other points that point out that we're Christian. And he really wouldn't have any of it. And so the only thing I had left 
was my testimony to him that I have experienced Jesus's love and grace, his enabling grace, his forgiving grace in my life. And how could I do that if I wasn't focused on the Savior Jesus Christ, if I wasn't Christian? Um, and so I, I, I love what you're saying, to better embrace in our hearts that the grace of Jesus Christ um, is not only good for us, but a, a way to talk about our faith with others. Well, for my study, uh, I, I, one of my favorite parables is the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, which again is in our study this upcoming month. And I think it's a beautiful place, at least it has been for me, to describe and define my relationship with Christ. Now, this is one of those parables that I've heard interpreted many different ways. And I think each interpretation helps us or helps has helped me to be really clear about my Christianity. The first interpretation of the Good Samaritan, remember this is the parable where uh, a, a man goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. So he's walking from Jerusalem, which is a pretty high elevation. It's a mountain in this, or a city in the mountains. And he's walking down to Jericho, which is down in the plain. And uh, as he's walking this road, he gets taken by thieves, beaten, stripped of his clothing, left for dead. And uh, as he's there, a priest walks by and doesn't stop to help him. A Levite walks by and doesn't stop to help him. But a Samaritan who walks by does stop, helps him, and then puts him on his own horse or on his own beast, takes him to, the, to an inn, uh, tells the innkeeper to take care of him, promises the innkeeper that he'll pay whatever is needed for his care. Uh, this all comes in, a, in response to a question that a lawyer asked Jesus, um, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the Savior answers, love God and love your neighbor. And the lawyer counters with, well, who is my neighbor? Uh, the first reading or the first interpretation of this parable that people often give is, well, this is a story about how we should love others. And I think that's a wonderful way to read the parable. Um, even if someone does not belong to our culture or to our church or to our specific brand of Christianity, uh, there is a responsibility we have as Christians to love them and care for them. And in fact, this is one of the very defining features of Christians. Uh, John 35, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. Um, so in fact, back when we were talking about symbols, I thought um, of this quote, I think Elder Holland mentions this in his talk, but President Hinckley years ago, when was it, when he was asked, why don't you have crosses on your church? He said, because the cross isn't the symbol of our church. And then he was asked, well, then what is the symbol of your church? How do you know that someone's a member of your church? And he said, the lives of our members are the symbols of our church. How do you know if someone's a member of the church of Jesus Christ? Well, broadly, how do you know if someone's a disciple of Christ? There's someone that seeks to love others um, and to treat them with love and kindness and respect. So that's the first uh, interpretation or application of the parable that I think has something to say about our Christianity. The second interpretation is where we see Christ symbolized in this parable as the Good Samaritan. In that reading, I am the man that fell among thieves. Life is difficult and, and I'm beset by sins and troubles and challenges. And the Savior comes along where I might have been ignored by others. The Savior himself comes along 
and sees my need, sees my pain, and through the power of his atonement is able to pour on uh, oil. That's one of the things the Samaritan does uh, to heal. He takes me to the inn and not only provides safety for me there, but tells the innkeeper, I will pay anything left over. That's not a description for grace. I don't know what is. Um, So in this parable, uh, we follow Jesus Christ. We love others, not just because it's a good thing to do. We do it because that's what Jesus did. In fact, right before that verse I read in John, uh, John 13, 34, is the very famous phrase from which we draw our primary song, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. I'll often ask people when we read that scripture, the commandment to love others isn't new. That's been around since the Old Testament. So what's new then about this commandment that Jesus is giving his disciples? And at the very least, it has to be, it's not just that you love others. I want you to love others the way that I love others. Which means, if you look at Jesus' ministry, he, he transcended barriers, lines, social barriers, physical barriers, uh, societal barriers, cultural barriers. He saw no otherness. He just loved and, and was able to reach out and care for those that were in need. And um, so that's what he does. And if I'm Christian, then that's what I'm going to do. Not just because it's a good thing, but I'm going to do it the way that Jesus did it. To do it with him in mind. Well, in this discussion of the Good Samaritan, doesn't this just remind you of um, the scripture from Matthew twenty five forty? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Yeah. In fact, that actually goes really well with the third reading of the parable of the Good Samaritan, or the third application of this parable. Um. I've always been only slightly uncomfortable with Jesus being symbolized by the Samaritan in the story, only because that seemed a little bit out of the norm. Uh, it's the only place I can see where Jesus would have used a Samaritan to symbolize himself. Now, I'm not saying that that's an inaccurate way to read the parable, but it did make me years ago wonder, I wonder if that's really the best symbolism for the Savior in this parable. And so as I went back and I read it, and I started to read the description of the man who fell among thieves, I started to see how clearly this man symbolized the Savior. Uh, Listen to this. A certain man went down from from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And then the Levite and the priest come, people who should have seen that this Jew uh, was someone worthy of attention, and yet they passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds um, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. It's no secret that in the Gospels we see a story of Jesus going to Jews, especially in in highly populated areas, in the metropolitan areas, Jerusalem and others, and was largely rejected by especially the, the ruling class. And yet just about every time he goes to a Samaritan city, there's faith, there's belief, there's healing, 
Um, you remember the woman at the well when she goes and tells her whole city and everyone believes Jesus just because the woman told them about her? That's the Samaritans that accept Jesus. I see this as perhaps the most beautiful um, description of Christianity for me. I follow Jesus Christ as best I can in loving and caring for others. But what really defines me as a Christian is the way that I view and treat the Savior Jesus Christ, what he means to me, and the care and attention I give to him, to his teachings, uh, to his example and his character. That's what makes me Christian. Um, and I love that in this story, the most unlikely person is the one who's the most Christian. And I wonder if um, our uniqueness as members of the Church of Jesus Christ doesn't detract us from being Christian. It actually enables us to be even more Christian. We have prophets and apostles, anciently and modernly, that do nothing but point us to Christ, that help us understand him better, love him more, care about him more, and follow his example more. And so for me, uh, this parable with all of its interpretations, but especially that last one, really describes why I feel so confident about claiming that I'm a Christian. As I think about all of that, it comes to mind that we had this discussion with our family a few nights ago, because I think we've, I don't know, I, do I need to repent from this, but that I maybe refer to us as Mormons a little too often. Um, part of that is just because most people recognize that, um, that term, but I noticed that that's what my kids sometimes call themselves too amongst their friends. And, and so we, we were having this discussion of what we sh what terms we should use to call ourselves. And because honestly, Mormons is kind of an easy, easy way to describe yourself. It's a one word. Most people know what it is or generally kind of get the idea when you say that. Um, and it's a long thing to say, well, we're members of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And, um, as we had this discussion, what came out of it was, well, maybe we should just you could just say you're Christian. We can just call ourselves Christians and because that is what we are. And the most important features of our faith of being followers of Jesus Christ is what links us together. So in answer to that question, are you a Christian or are Mormons Christian or are is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Christians? I think that we can answer that confidently with a yes, at least from our opinions. I think that we are Christian and I'm proud to be a part of that. Thank you so much for studying with us this month. Um, have a great Easter, great general conference, and we will be back next month.